0: The truth and the lie. What does this mean for the mystery of consciousness?
1: Once upon a time, truth met the lie.
0: Well, it opens up new possibilities.
1: And the lie said to the truth, it's a marvelous day today. And the truth looked up to the sky and sighed, for the day really was beautiful. Perhaps reality is some vast machine They spent a lot of time together, ultimately arriving right next to a well.
0: And the lion looked at truth and said, the water is very nice. Let's take a bath together. Perhaps reality is some vast interacting network of conscious agents. The truth, once again suspicious, tested the water
1: but discovered that, indeed, it was very nice. Actually, this isn't as crazy an idea as it seems. So Truth started to undress and started to bathe. Suddenly, the lie came out of the water, put on the clothes of Truth, and ran away. The furious Truth came out of the well and ran everywhere to find the lie, to get her clothes back. Everyone else in the world, seeing Truth naked, turned its gaze away with contempt and rage. The poor Truth returned to the well, and disappeared forever, hiding therein its shame.
0: I bet that reality will end up turning out to be more fascinating and unexpected than we'd ever
1: imagined. Ever since that day, lie has been traveling around the world dressed as truth, satisfying the needs of society, because the world, in any case, harbors no wish at all to meet the naked truth. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. This is episode 605, 2020 vision. What am I calling this? What is real? Five naked truths of Mormonism to choke on. So here's what we're gonna be doing today. Today we're gonna be going through a TED talk from a cognitive scientist named Donald Hoffman. Now this TED talk was delivered in March, 2015. And I recently heard about it from a friend of mine named Ken. Shout out to Ken. Hey, Ken. So, the, the TED Talk is called Do We See Reality as It Is? And uh, I'm really just going to jump right into it and, and interject. But, you know, th- this, is, this is a topic that I've talked about with Tom quite a bit. And, in fact, uh, I'll, I'll let you know um, earlier this month, uh, I, I went and saw Abraham Hicks in person. I think I mentioned that on, on one of the episodes. And we recorded a follow-up. After I got back from it, um, Tom got on, uh, one of our listeners from Patreon got on, and and we had a conversation. Unfortunately, there were some audio difficulties from early on, and it ended up not being recorded. Aww. Yeah. One of the things that I really was looking forward to hearing back... um, in that conversation, we talked a little bit about The Matrix and how they're making a fourth Matrix movie. I'm kind of speculated on what that might be. And in the course of it, I started talking about what's real and what's not real. And I got Tom so infuriated. It was so fun. I'm really sad that you missed me infuriating Tom with my questions of reality. But anyway, so this talk today, this episode today, reviewing this TED Talk might infuriate Tom. And, and those of you who relate to Tom... Uh, as you might. And after we listen to this TED Talk today, I am going to give you five naked truths to choke on. Oh! They're naked truths, y'all, for you to choke on. That's I'm going to give it to you afterwards. Not now, afterwards. So let's get right to it, shall we?
0: I love a great mystery, and I'm fascinated by the greatest unsolved mystery in science. Which is... How many of you listeners have been listening to Infants on Thrones long enough
1: to remember the episode, Bob's Superlative Disorder? That is the greatest, 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 greatest mystery anywhere, science or otherwise.
0: Perhaps because it's personal. It's about who we are. And I can't help but be curious. Which tells you that he's never had the missionaries come to his door, right?
1: Because, you know, this is a question that as missionaries, we were told everybody wants to know. Who are we? Why are we here? Where did we come from? And as missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have that answer for them, right? We lived before we came here in pre-existence. We voted to see if we were going to follow Jesus or Lucifer. Um, Lucifer all wanted all the glory to go to him, apparently. And uh, we, we all chose, right, we, we chose to come to earth. We know who we are. We're children of God. And we have the restored gospel. We know it. I mean, Like Mormons know it, right? So this wouldn't be a mystery to a Mormon, but um, to this guy, you know, so he's he's got some things to learn, I guess. I guess he's got some things to learn. This cognitive scientist. And yes, I can joke about it now, but I actually used to think like this for reals, for realsies.
0: The mystery is this: What is the relationship between your brain and your conscious experiences, such as your experience of the taste of chocolate or the feeling of velvet? Now this mystery is not new. In 1868, Thomas Huxley wrote, how it is that anything so remarkable as a state of consciousness comes about as the result of irritating nervous tissue is just as unaccountable as the appearance of the genie when Aladdin rubbed his lamp.
1: And almost equally as unaccountable as Aladdin saying, Good teenagers take off their clothes, you know, that subliminal message good in the Aladdin movie. Good anyway. What is real?
0: Now Huxley knew that brain activity and conscious experiences are correlated, but he didn't know why. To the science of his day, it was a mystery. Spoiler alert,
1: it still is. What is real?
0: In the years since Huxley, science has learned a lot about brain activity. But the relationship between brain activity and conscious experiences is still a mystery. Why? Why have we made so little progress? Well, some experts think that we can't solve this problem because we lack the necessary concepts and intelligence. We don't expect monkeys to solve problems in quantum mechanics, and as it happens, we can't expect our species to solve this problem either. Well, I disagree. I'm more optimistic. I think we've simply made a false assumption. Once we fix it, we just might solve this problem. Today, I'd like to tell you what that assumption is, why it's false, and how to fix it. And I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert right here because it takes him a while
1: to get to it. And the first time I watched this, I kind of missed it. So the assumption that, that he's challenging is that what we perceive, what we see and hear is an accurate depiction of what's reality, of what's actually there. And so what he's going to build towards is that it's not necessarily accurate in saying that it's whole and complete and you get the whole truth, nothing but the truth, but that the portions of the things that we're able to perceive are accurate enough. This is kind of like Jordan Peterson. True, Jordan Peterson's true enough. It's, it's accurate enough. It's true enough. Um, that we see what's there, that we've evolved to be able to see the tiger or the snake or, you know, whatever the danger might be, that it's accurate enough, but it's not a whole picture. And so if you confuse uh, seeing accurately the little sliver of thing for seeing the whole, um, you get yourself into trouble. That's that's the assumption that he's going to be challenging here and that I'm going to be building on a little bit later to talk about the Mormon church being true or not true. Interesting?
0: Intriguing? Yeah, who knows? Let's begin with a question. Do we see reality as it is?
1: What is, real? what is real?
0: I open my eyes, and I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato a meter away. As a result, I come to believe that in reality, there's a red tomato a meter away. I then close my eyes, and my experience changes to a gray field. But is it still the case that in reality, there's a red tomato a meter away? I think so, but could I be wrong? Could I be misinterpreting the nature of my perceptions?
1: You know, I, I gotta be honest here. I don't find the red tomato example that compelling. I, and maybe I don't get it. Maybe I don't quite understand what he's saying here. Um, but if, if you, I guess it's kind of like, does a tree make sound? If it falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, you know, I mean, in in that case, I think it's I think it's an interesting question because you you say what is sound? Well, sound is the sound is what we call it when um, molecules in the air are disrupted and that disruption hits a human eardrum and uh, the the human eardrum is able to uh, acknowledge it, record the 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 sensory perception of hearing that. So if there's no one there to hear it there's no human eardrum for the air molecules disrupted air molecules to impact does it technically make a sound i mean it, it's it's the semantic game it's all about how you define what sound is I, if if the question was is the tree really there and does the tree really disrupt the air molecules when there's not a human around to to see it or hear it and somebody said, no, it's not, I'd go, eh, no, I don't, I don't buy that. And that's kind of how I feel about this red tomato example. You know, if, if there's a red tomato in front of me, and I close my eyes, is it still in front of me? Uh, yeah, unless somebody picks it up and moves it. I don't, I, I don't quite understand where he's going with that. But um, as far as asking the question, are we misinterpreting uh, the the signals that we have? I, I I think the only time that we really misinterpret it is when we think that that's all that's there. And that there isn't, that there aren't things that are outside of our visual spectrum or our audio spectrum or you know like there's just not stuff there that's impacting the things that we can see in ways that we probably don't know because we can't see it we can't sense it to me i think that's where we make the mistake and that's where i find uh, topics like this really interesting and compelling but the
0: red tomato example
1: i don't
0: know we've misinterpreted our perceptions before we used to think the earth is flat because it looks that way. Pythagoras discovered that we were wrong. Then we thought that the Earth is the unmoving center of the universe, again, because it looks that way. Copernicus and Galileo discovered, again, that we were wrong. Galileo then wondered if we might be misinterpreting our experiences in other ways. He wrote, I think that tastes, odors, colors and so on reside in consciousness. Hence, if the living creature were removed, all these qualities would be annihilated. Now that's a stunning claim. Could Galileo be right? Could we really be misinterpreting our experiences that badly? What does modern science have to say about this?
1: I, I, yeah, I don't know. But, but again, I, I, I just might not be following where he's going with this because what I take away from what Galileo said is if there isn't an experience there an experiencer to experience the taste of something or the sound of something or see the color of something, then that experience of tasting isn't there because you don't have to taster. But I, I don't know how that's misinterpreting the sensation because the, the, the disrupted air molecules that are impacting our eardrum would exist whether our eardrum's there or not, right? It's just the thing that we call... Sound or whatever frequency or whatever word or you know like that wouldn't be I don't I don't know but I don't know how that's misinterpreted I don't know. so I'll shut up and we'll go back to Donald Hoffman. Go ahead, Donald Hoffman.
0: Well, neuroscientists tell us that about a third of the brain's cortex is engaged in vision. When you simply open your eyes and look about this room, billions of neurons and trillions of synapses are engaged. Now this is a bit surprising because to the extent that we think about vision at all. We think of it as like a camera that just takes a picture of objective reality as it is. Now, there is a part of vision that's like a camera. The eye has a lens that focuses an image on the back of the eye where there are 130 million photoreceptors. So the eye is like a 130-megapixel camera. But that doesn't explain the billions of neurons and trillions of synapses that are engaged in vision. What are these neurons up to? Well, neuroscientists tell us that they're creating in real time all the shapes, objects, colors, and motions that we see. It feels like we're just taking a snapshot of this room the way it is, but in fact, we're constructing everything that we see.
1: Wait, wait. wait. so what does that mean, that we're constructing everything that we see? I I think that's a really easy uh, statement to misinterpret. So I think if, if you think what he's saying there is, you know, go back to the tomato example. If you open up your eyes and you look and you see that it's round and you see that it's red and got a little green uh, hair on top of it, you know, as tomatoes have the little green patch of hair. And uh, he's saying that we are constructing inside of our brains the, the, whatever mechanism that tells us red is red and green is green and round is round and those kinds of things. But I don't take it to mean that the actual object that we're observing is being constructed because of what's happening in our mind. It's just our mind is taking in this information and it's got some kind of processor that it runs through to interpret what it means. So we're constructing that meaning inside of our mind. We're not constructing the elements outside of our head. I, I, I think that sometimes people get uh, confused with that when they hear uh, language like this. So I don't know. Any, any experts out there listening to this? Or is this more just like kind of like the tree that falls in the forest and nobody's listening so there isn't any sound? I don't, that might be what this podcast is at this point. Uh, we'll see
0: we'll see it feels like we're just taking a snapshot of this room the way it is but in fact we're constructing everything that we see we don't construct the whole world at once we construct what we need in the moment
1: and i want to take another swing at this because constructing you know like looking in the room we're not really seeing everything that's in the room right i mean there's there's like x-rays, microwaves, uh, there's things that are existing that are outside of our uh, range of vision, right? So there's there's things that we can't see. Uh, and, and so we don't really, even though we're opening up our eyes, we don't really have a clear snapshot of reality. We only see those things that our sensory organs have evolved to be able to perceive. And the word that he uses there, what we need, because these are things that we've needed in order to survive and thrive in the world as our species has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years that's how i interpret that um so and and this is an important point i think when i make my claims at the end of this how it ties into the reality of the mormon church is the mormon church true is the mormon church not true are we seeing everything that's there are we or are we only seeing those things that are necessary for our own survival and whatever itch is being scratched by being a member of the Mormon Church for as long as it's working for us. That's really the, the, the question and the parallel that I want to make. So if you want to follow along as we're listening to Hoffman here, that's where my mind is going. Now,
0: there are many demonstrations that are quite compelling that we construct what we see. I'll just show you two. In this example, you see some red discs, with bits cut out of them. But if I just rotate the disks a little bit, suddenly you see a 3D cube pop out of the screen. Now, the screen, of course, is flat, so the three-dimensional cube that you're experiencing must be your construction. In this next example, you see glowing blue bars with pretty sharp edges moving across a field of dots. In fact, No dots move. All I'm doing from frame to frame is changing the colors of dots from blue to black or black to blue. But when I do this quickly, your visual system creates the glowing blue bars with the sharp edges and the motion. There are many more examples, but these are just two that you construct what you see. But neuroscientists go further. They say that we reconstruct reality. So when I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato, that experience is actually an accurate reconstruction of the properties of a real red tomato that would exist even if I weren't looking. Now why would neuroscientists say that we don't just construct, we reconstruct? Well, the standard argument given is usually an evolutionary one.
1: And this is where he's going to set up the assumption that he's later going to challenge and try to knock down.
0: Those of our ancestors who saw more accurately had a competitive advantage compared to those who saw less accurately.
1: I, uh, I know a lot of ex-Mormons who feel this way about um, their true believing Mormon TBM counterparts, that they've got a, a leg up on them because they're able to see things more accurately than the, the blind followers. You, you see where I'm going with that? You know what I'm, You know what I'm saying? Are you one of them?
0: And therefore, they were more likely to pass on their genes. We're the offspring of those who saw more accurately, and so we can be confident that, in the normal case, our perceptions are accurate. You see this in the standard textbooks. One textbook says, for example, evolutionarily speaking, vision is useful precisely because it's so accurate. So the idea is that accurate perceptions are fitter perceptions, they give you a survival advantage. Now, is this correct? Is this the right interpretation of evolutionary theory? Well, let's first look at a couple examples in nature. The Australian jewel beetle is dimpled, glossy and brown. The female is flightless. The male flies, looking, of course, for a hot female. When he finds one, he alights and mates. There's another species in the outback, Homo sapiens. The male of this species has a massive brain that he uses to hunt for cold beer. (laughs) And when he finds one, he drains it and sometimes throws the bottle into the outback. Now, as it happens, these bottles are dimpled, glossy and just the right shade of brown to tickle the fancy of these beetles. The males swarm all over the bottles, trying to mate they lose all interest in the real females. A classic case of the male leaving the female for the bottle. <laughs> the species almost went extinct. Australia had to change its bottles to save its beetles. <laughs> now, the males had successfully found females for thousands, perhaps millions of years. It looked like they saw reality as it is, but apparently not. Evolution had given them a hack. A female is anything dimpled, glossy and brown. The bigger, the better. (laughs) Even when crawling all over the bottle, the male couldn't discover his mistake. Now, you might say, beetles, sure. They're very simple creatures, but surely not mammals. Mammals don't rely on tricks. Well, I won't dwell on this, but you get the idea. He's showing a picture of a bull that's mounting the statue of a cow. So this raises an important technical question. Does natural selection really favor seeing reality as it is? You know, and I I want to pause it here, and I think I want to riff a
1: little bit on the Book of Mormon. Because the Book of Mormon might be compared to um, one of those beer bottles that's, Brown and, and dimply and um, is something that the, the, the male beetle confuses for the, the female beetle. You know, in, in our case, in, in the human case, if, if you subscribe to the idea that humans co-evolved with religion for hundreds of thousands of years and that re- religion filled a, a very important function of creating group unity and that there's safety in group unity, You know, you can understand the the very valuable role that religion played. So when Joseph Smith says, I'm going to write a book modeled after the Bible uh, called the Book of Mormon, because my my theory is that it was written by Joseph Smith. um, It's this thing that looks like Scripture. It looks like the Bible. It feels like the Bible. It smells like the Bible. And it's attractive to people like the, the male beetles were attracted to the, uh, the, the bottle. What do you think about that analogy? Do you think I made that connection? Did I land that? Did I land that one? I don't know, stay with me. Let, let's go back to Hoffman.
0: Fortunately, we don't have to wave our hands and guess. Evolution is a mathematically precise theory. We can use the equations of evolution to check this out. We can have various organisms or artificial worlds compete And see which survive and which thrive which sensory systems are more fit
1: and the the question that he's going to ask is do those organisms who see all of reality for what it is and they they don't filter out the parts of reality that are just um necessary for their own fitness and survival but they're seeing everything they get overwhelmed and they're not uh they, they don't adapt they really but, but the ones that are able to ignore things that aren't important and just focus on the things that are important, those are the ones that survive. That That's what he's going to be explaining here. And so as he's doing it, I would just ask you to think, what, what does that tell you about the role that religion would play, that the Book of Mormon specifically would play, even the Bible would play um, in... in in, in, in the evolution of our species. <laughs> what, what, what functional role does that play and what value is provided there? Um, if you're saying, well, I see things for what they are, these things aren't true. Uh, is that gonna be more valuable or is it more
0: valuable to do it another way? A key notion in those equations is fitness. Consider this stake. What does this steak do for the fitness of an animal? Well, for a hungry lion looking to eat, it enhances fitness. For a well-fed lion looking to mate, it doesn't enhance fitness. And for a rabbit in any state, it doesn't enhance fitness. So fitness does depend on reality as it is, yes, but also on the organism, its state and its action. Fitness is not the same thing as reality as it is, and its fitness and not reality as it is, that figures centrally in the equations of evolution.
1: And I think what he's talking about here is very similar to something that uh, Chelsea Shields has said on this podcast before. Several years ago, uh, there was an episode on placebos, the placebo effect. And Chelsea was talking about time that she spent in Africa um, doing field work. And she saw the the way that a, a, a shaman was interacting with people in the village there was a a girl that was accused of being a witch and in order for her to have the witchcraft removed she had to go through some kind of a ritual beating Um, and Chelsea looked at that through her western values and her western eyes and saying that's horrible first of all witchcraft isn't real Um, and so you're pretending to this thing you're beating this girl and um, so she talked about this experience uh, Matt and Scott were on and, and they're like yeah but there's it, it, it was wrong what they were doing. And Chelsea said something like, well, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And what she learned through her experience, you know, for, for because the shaman knew that it was really difficult for, for Chelsea to see this girl being ritually beaten, the shaman agreed that if Chelsea was around, he would not beat the girl. Win-win. And, and the girl came to Chelsea and said, thank you for being there. I want to avoid being beaten. The problem was that if she wasn't beaten, then she couldn't have the witchcraft removed from her, and if she couldn't have the witchcraft removed from her, her family would not accept her. So after several weeks of being shunned and exiled because of her supposed witchcraft, she came to Chelsea and said, "Um, would you uh, actually not come to the ceremony this time? I need to go ahead and receive that ritual beating so that I can have my place again with my family and that was something that was really hard for Chelsea to do but she recognized okay there's this these cultural differences where this is a very real thing for him for for these people that have to do with their fitness and so she asked the question do you want to be right or do you want to be effective and I think that's what he's talking about here when he's saying focusing on fitness as a feature of evolution rather than reality like all of reality
0: does that make sense? So in my lab We have run hundreds of thousands of evolutionary game simulations with lots of different randomly chosen worlds and organisms that compete for resources in those worlds. Some of the organisms see all of the reality, others see just part of the reality, and some see none of the reality, only fitness. Who wins? Well, I hate to break it to you, but perception of reality goes extinct. In almost every simulation, organisms that see none of reality but are just tuned to fitness drive to extinction all the organisms that perceive reality as it is. So the bottom line is evolution does not favor vertical or accurate perceptions. Those perceptions of reality go extinct.
1: So when I heard this for the first time, because as I was listening to him talk, of course, I'm because the way that I'm interested in questions of reality and religion and fictions and all these things that you've probably heard me talk about before on this podcast, I was thinking about the Mormon Church, and I was thinking about uh, conversations that we've had on this podcast before uh, about having truth-seeking brains and that sort of thing, and and that there seems to be this this thought among a lot of ex-Mormons that being able to see things for how they actually are gives us a leg up. It gives us an advantage. And what he's saying here is that evolutionarily speaking, the ones that are focused on a more narrow range of reality—like I—I I, don't—I I don't think it's not reality what they're focusing on, but it's not the entirety of reality. So it's like they're not wasting their resources uh, trying to filter and understand and make meaning of every sensory perception that's out there. It's focused just on the ones that are going to lead to their ultimate fitness. And it just made me wonder. So I'm gonna pose this as a question. I'm curious what you think. Is there a benefit for people who are able to keep those blinders on, keep the doubts on the shelf, keep the toothpaste squeezed inside of the tube and just put their head down and go along their merry way inside of this culture of Mormonism that they were born into, not rocking the boat, having the support of everybody around them. Like, you know, it's it's hard to think about it that way because of course, from my perspective and from my own biases, I look at that, that way of living as being very limiting and, uh, conditioning people to, um, think that worthiness comes as a result of certain types of actions. And if you violate those actions, then you're not worthy, not worthy. You're without worth, you're worthless. And that's, ugh, I hate that. It was one of the reasons why I left, but am I in a better place having left? Do I, do I have a strong community around me? Do I have a strong support system that if I get sick, I'm going to have people bringing me casseroles and mowing my lawn for me? And you know, this These things that might help me with my fitness if I need help? I don't know. That's the question. It's an interesting question. It's a sad, sad, depressing. Happy New Year. Interesting question.
0: Now, this is a bit stunning. How can it be that not seeing the world accurately gives us a survival advantage? That is a bit counterintuitive. But remember the jewel beetle. The jewel beetle survived for thousands, perhaps millions of years, using simple tricks and hacks. What the equations of evolution are telling us is that all organisms, including us, are in the same boat as the jewel beetle. We do not see reality as it is. We're shaped with tricks and hacks that keep us alive.
1: So, is it possible that credulity, you know, some might call it gullibility if you're being really harsh about it, but but the the ability to just accept things on faith without really questioning and challenging it might have uh, an advantage evolutionarily towards survival and it might be a disadvantage to actually question and probe and challenge and strip away the illusions of reality. Yeah. That's, that's part of this Happy New Year's question that I'm asking here. What do you think? You know, it's, it's, it's 2020. Do we wanna have 2020 vision, accuracy about everything? Or, or do we wanna go back into the matrix so that we can eat the pretend steak and taste it,
0: yum? <laughs> Still, we need some help with our intuitions. How can not perceiving reality as it is be useful? Well, fortunately, we have a very helpful metaphor, the desktop interface on your computer. Consider that blue icon for a TED talk that you're writing. Now, the icon is blue and rectangular and in the lower right corner of the desktop. Does that mean that the text file itself in the computer is blue, rectangular and in the lower right-hand corner of the computer? Of course not. Anyone who thought that misinterprets the purpose of the interface. It's not there to show you the reality of the computer. In fact, it's there to hide that reality. You don't want to know about the diodes and resistors and all the megabytes of software. If you had to deal with that, you could never write your text file or edit your photo. So the idea is that evolution has given us an interface that hides reality and guides adaptive behavior.
1: And and what would be the Mormon church equivalent of this, I don't know, the scriptures, the commandments, the follow the prophet messages, the once the prophet has spoken, the thinking has been done kind of thing, don't waste your energy on trying to figure things out, we've already done it for you, just do it, just, just do it, President Kimball, man, these shortcuts and hacks that if you follow them and you stay within this culture, you will be just fine. Survival, baby, survival.
0: Space and time, as you perceive them right now, are your desktop. Physical objects are simply icons in that desktop. There's an obvious objection. Hoffman, if you think that train coming down the track at 200 miles an hour is just an icon of your desktop, (laughs) why don't you step in front of it? And after you're gone and your theory with you, we'll know that there's more to that train than just an icon. Well, I wouldn't step in front of that train for the same reason that I wouldn't carelessly drag that icon to the trash can. Not because I take the icon literally. The file is not literally blue or rectangular. But I do take it seriously. I could lose weeks of work. Similarly, evolution has shaped us with perceptual symbols that are designed to keep us alive. we better take them seriously. If you see a snake, don't pick it up. If you see a cliff, don't jump off. They're designed to keep us safe and we should take them seriously. But That does not mean that we should take them literally. That's a logical error.
1: Mm. So it's a logical error to confuse taking something seriously with taking something literally. And you know, again to, to invoke Chelsea's wisdom from years past, do you want to be Right, or you do want to be? Do you want to be effective? Maybe when when we're struggling, you know, we, we go, "Oh, the Book of Mormon isn't true; it's not literal," and then we just dump the whole thing. Maybe there is kind of a baby with the bathwater kind of thing, where you can take it seriously, even if you don't take it literally. And I know that's hard to do in certain circles that insist upon. Uh, there's, there's no distinction between taking something seriously and taking something literally. But if, if that's like a... For any of you who are out there, and I know I've talked with several of you um, with, with life coaching recently, and which has been so fun, by the way. So I'm going to put a little plug here. If any of you are interested in, in life coaching, you want to find out what that's about, send me an email at Infants on thrones at gmail.com and we'll set up a time free of charge to talk for an hour and and see if it's something that you're interested in. But I've talked with so many of you, more than I thought in the past, who are still going to church and trying to figure out how to make it work because it's so frustrating to sit in church. And I think a lot of that frustration that I felt, that I've heard several of you talk about, is this distinction between taking something seriously and taking something literally. How can you take it seriously if you don't take it literally? So let's see if there's any more insights there that we could get from from
0: Hoffman. Another objection. Now, there's nothing really new here. Physicists have told us for a long time that the metal of that train looks solid, but really it's mostly empty space with microscopic particles zipping around. There's nothing new here. Well, not exactly. It's like saying, I know that that blue icon on the desktop is not the reality of the computer, but if I pull out my trusty magnifying glass and look really closely, I see little pixels, and that's the reality of the computer. Well, not really. You're still on the desktop. And that's the point. Those microscopic particles are still in space and time. They're still in the user interface. So I'm saying something far more radical than those physicists. Finally, you might object. Look, we all see the train. Therefore, none of us constructs the train. But remember this example. In this example, we all see a cube. But the screen is flat. So the cube that you see is the cube that you construct. We all see a cube because we all, each one of us, constructs the cube that we see.
1: Yeah, I mean, I. I'd <sighs> I, I, I feel the same way about this train analogy as I do about the tomato analogy. And I feel like he's he's kind of, I don't know, may, maybe it's just me. I don't understand what he's saying when he's talking about you constructed in your brain. But when he's saying that what he's claiming is very radically different because um, he's claiming that they aren't really a part of space-time, but that things being a part of space-time is something that you're constructing in your brain. Yeah, I don't... I I don't really get that. That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. But what does make sense to me is that things that are there, things that are really in the world that we are looking at and we see there's color around them, there's speed, there's sound, there's all these things that we can experience, Um, we, we need to take them seriously, whether they are the entirety of reality or not, to be able to understand what these things are doing, even if it's something that is... Uh, fake <laughs> like pseudepigrapha so you know you know what pseudepigrapha is pseudepigrapha is something it's it's fake scripture it's it's written in the style of scripture passed off as if it is scripture but it's written in a different time by a different person and that's basically what the book of mormon is the book of moses the book of abraham it's pseudepigrapha but what is it doing just because it's a fake thing just because it's not really what it says that it is, it's still an actual artifact. It's a real thing that really exists in the world. It's a part of space-time. <laughs> and it has real functions. It's a real value in what it's doing for this group of people. And um, something that needs to be taken seriously uh, in, in considering what am I going to do now that I've opened up my eyes and I see that this book of Abraham isn't really the book of Abraham. And it's kind of silly actually when I look at it. There's a place in there called Potiphar's Hill. <laughs> this is this is like way before. Like Abraham was way before the Joseph in Egypt story and he goes to a place called Potiphar's Hill. <laughs> Anyway. Anyway. Um you know so so like what do you like for for me when I started seeing that stuff just because I like playing around I just started mocking it but then it pissed people off. It didn't it 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 did not help make friends and influence people inside of the Mormon church. So I didn't take it seriously enough for what it was. I just mocked it and, and played with it and had fun with it. Which I'm not going to judge. I did it. I enjoyed it. I chose it. Um, But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm learning new things now. I'm asking different questions and sharing that with you. So that's what this is about.
0: The same is true of the train. We all see a train because we each see the train that we construct. And the same is true of all physical objects.
1: But like you haven't said anything, Hoffman, that makes me, like that demonstrates, like there's no evidence that we're constructing it. Like what, it's not really there? We're, we're just constructing it like it's magic and we're Harry Potter. Like, I, I don't really understand what you're saying. If, if you're talking about um, the way that we create it in our mind, you know, I covered this earlier. I just, I, I, th- this, this part gets a little bit uh, problematic for me.
0: Ken. <laughs> we're inclined to think that perception is like a window on reality as it is. The theory of evolution is telling us that this is an incorrect interpretation of our perceptions.
1: Well, I mean, even even understanding the principle of confirmation bias, you know that, like nobody has this, this blank, biased, free view of the world. Like we're, we're all interpreting the things that we see and the meaning that we assign to it based on past experience, past emotions, Things that have been good, things that have been bad, the way that we judge stuff, you know, we things that we want to be true, things that we don't want to be true, you know. I, confirmation bias plays such a strong role in our perception um, that I, I don't know. I I don't think that people all look at the world as if we're seeing it as it really is, but I, I may, maybe maybe you do. Maybe you think that what you see is just what's there, and you don't recognize that what you're looking at and what you're focusing on says just as much about you (laughs) or maybe more about you on where you're focusing your attention and what it means to you um than what it is for that actual thing that you're looking at and that that part's really interesting to me but i don't think you're making it up out of nothing i think you're just you're you're interpreting it through your lens of understanding and experience how about we say it that way that's what i think and i have a degree in folklore baby
0: instead Reality is more like a 3-D desktop that's designed to hide the complexity of the real world and guide adaptive behavior. Space, as you perceive it, is your desktop. Physical objects are just the icons in that desktop. We used to think that the Earth is flat, because it looks that way. Then we thought that the Earth is the unmoving center of reality, because it looks that way. We were wrong. We had misinterpreted our perceptions. Now we believe that space-time and objects are the nature of reality as it is. The theory of evolution is telling us that, once again, we're wrong. We're misinterpreting the content of our perceptual experiences. There's something that exists when you don't look, but it's not space-time and physical objects. It's as hard for us to let go of space-time and objects as it is for the jewel beetle to let go of its bottle. Why? because we're blind to our own blindnesses. But we have an advantage over the jewel beetle, our science and technology. By peering through the lens of a telescope, we discovered that the Earth is not the unmoving center of reality. By peering through the lens of the theory of evolution, we discovered that space-time and objects are not the nature of reality. When I have a perceptual experience that I describe as a red tomato, I am interacting with reality. But that reality is not a red tomato and is nothing like a red tomato. Uh, except it is, you know, like I get that red
1: is a construct, that these words are symbols, you know, red and tomato, these words, and that it's actually like whatever chemical basis and the subatomic energy that makes it and atoms and cells and molecules and blah, blah, blah. But th- through our human experience, when we've encountered this thing in the real world, we've 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 created a common understanding, the, these hacks, these shortcuts, and we've said this is red, this is what we call this red, we call this tomato, this thing. So to say it's nothing like a red tomato, I mean, that's like a shump jarking, <laughs> shark jumping or shump jarking. It could be a shump jarking moment. It's nothing like a shump jarker moment for me. Yeah, that's it's where you lose me, Hoffman, but I love this. I love you. I love everyone. It's all about love.
0: Similarly, when I have an experience that I describe as a lion or a steak, I'm interacting with reality, but that reality is not a lion or a steak. And here's the kicker. When I have a perceptual experience that I describe as a brain or neurons, I am interacting with reality, but that reality is not a brain or neurons, and it's nothing like a brain or neurons. And that reality, whatever it is, is the real source of cause and effect in the world. Not brains, not neurons. Brains and neurons have no causal powers. They cause none of our perceptual experiences and none of our behavior. Brains and neurons are a species-specific set of symbols, a hack.
1: Yeah, that, that's a, it's a really powerful statement. It's a really powerful claim that he just made. That brains and neurons are species-specific hacks. So I, I I guess species-specific in the sense that we've been evolving our our Homo sapien brain, which is a species-specific brain. Like I listened to a Radiolab episode many many years ago about the different cones that. Uh, people have in their eyes. Like most people, if I remember right, have three cones. Every once in a while, I have somebody that see, has four cones in their eyes and they're able to see a wider range of uh, color on the spectrum because of that fourth cone. But you've got um, like shrimp. I think they have like 18 cones in their eyes. Um, butterflies have more cones in their eyes. So they're able to see uh, more colors, colors that we can't see or perceive. And, and so there would be that species specific experience of living that comes because of how many cones you have in your eye and you know that sort of thing so so along those lines i can follow him and go okay yeah species specific hacks but if he's making the claim that uh, one one more thing because i because i do recognize so if if i'm standing in front of a tree and there's a butterfly that's in front of a tree, and there's a shrimp that's in front of a tree, and, and maybe a snake that's in front of a tree. And and we're all perceiving the tree through our evolved senses. It's gonna be different. You know, like snakes have this way of perceiving the world through um temperature, like what is it, thermo, whatever it is. So so they can feel like heat that's given off by the the tree and and there must be something I would imagine in the snake's brain that uh, interprets it in the way that we do light and so that we kind of see this picture in our brain or you know with sound where we go okay I recognize that word and it has this meaning or I recognize that sound and it has this meaning that snakes have done that for uh, for temperature and so the the tree in front of it would appear very different to a snake or to a bat that doesn't have sight. They just have the sonar. And so the, the echoes of the sonar coming back is creating a different picture in their brain. So what we're seeing is kind of like the blind man and the elephant. Um, we can never really, you know, we can't say that, that the human experience of what that tree is, is more valid than what the these other species and what their evolved senses have been able to tell it. Uh, it's not more valid than their experience of what it is, and it's different. So it's species-specific. Uh, anyway, I, I've gone on <laughs> pretty long on this this tangent. I think that's what he's talking about here. That's where I can follow him. And I think even within species-specific, you can have cultural-specific hacks that we develop um, within the, the, the subgroups of our Homo sapien species. And Mormons are definitely a very, very strong high context folk group that have a lot of traditions and beliefs and customs and songs and food and all of these things in common that then have an impact on our brain, on the way that we see the world. And so there's there's cultural specific ways that, that our, our brains and neurons act as well, I would assume. All right, back to Hoffman as he wraps it up.
0: What does this mean for the mystery of consciousness? Well, it opens up new possibilities. For instance, perhaps reality is some vast machine that causes our conscious experiences. I doubt this, but it's worth exploring. Perhaps reality is some vast interacting network of conscious agents, simple and complex, that cause each other's conscious experiences. Actually, this isn't as crazy an idea as it seems, and I'm currently exploring it. But, but here's the point. Once we let go of our massively intuitive, but massively false assumption about the nature of reality.
1: And once again, that false assumption is that what we are perceiving is an accurate representation of reality. So once we're able to let go of that and to know, well, it's, it's accurate species wise for our survival, the fitness of survival, but it's not all of reality. It's not real, capital T, truth reality, right? That's what he's saying we need to let go of.
0: It opens up new ways to think about life's greatest mystery.
1: And the the reason I like it, more than like new ways to think about uh, life's greatest mystery, which is fun, I like that too, but to be more accepting of the way that other people view things, to be more accepting and to be less... um, dogmatic to be less rigid to be less strident about my way of seeing things as being the right way and going oh wait it's not even a right way (laughs) at least as far as being complete and accurate that I've got my own shortcuts and hacks some of which are biologically inherited others are culturally inherited And, um, so I can, I can let go and I can be more accepting of other people and far less judgmental and then less judgmental of myself because I'm not comparing and despairing and doing that whole thing. So that's where I see a tremendous value in, in a message like this from Donald Hoffman.
0: I bet that reality will end up turning out to be more fascinating and unexpected than we'd ever imagined. The theory of evolution presents us with the ultimate dare. Dare to recognize that perception is not about seeing truth. It's about having kids. And by the way, even this TED is just in your head. Thank you very much. (laughs)
1: All right, so having, having listened to Donald Hoffman's TED Talk with my interjections, I want to leave you with um, what, I'm, what I'm calling the five naked truths to choke on. <laughs> Some Mormonism, the five naked truths to choke on. And, uh, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind. But here's the first one um, that I see as a truth. The Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, and the Book of Moses are not historical documents depicting true historical characters and events. They are, however, true historical documents depicting the tremendous galvanizing power of tradition, culture, and faith among the Latter-day Saint people. So they may not be real in the sense that the stories depicted actually happened, but they are unquestionably real in the sense that they bind a group of people together in a community dedicated to service and love for one another. So there's my first truth for, I, I, I like to think that um, <laughs> if there was anybody who's a true believer who's listening to this, there'd be parts of this that they'd be like, oh yeah, I can accept that and other parts that maybe they'd choke on. And if there's, you know, like the uh, certain kinds of ex-Mormons listening to this, that there would be parts of it that they'd go, yeah, I can get that. It's all bullshit. But then parts that they would choke on is like, no, it's not valuable. It's just bullshit. We got to get rid of it. So I'm trying to go like middle way here, you know. These are both true and and need to be taken seriously. Even if not literally, maybe. I don't know. The second one. The closest that any human mind can come to a comprehensive, error-free understanding of the truth about any aspect of reality is only through our own flawed and biased symbols and images. And it's easy to confuse, for example, respect for a flag with respect for a country. But just as the flag is a piece of cloth that symbolizes the country, the very idea of country itself is a symbol that represents a very complex set of ideas, locations, customs, populations, etc., etc., So the same is true for churches and doctrines and beliefs about God. These are all symbols that are flawed, and they're an imperfect view of reality. That's my number two truth to choke on. Number three is that imagination is really all that we have. If you worship God by praying and listening for answers, what you're doing is using your imagination to focus your thoughts and to process information. Imagination is perhaps our most influential way of perceiving reality. It might even be considered a very true and powerful sixth sense. Not ESP, but just imagination. Just just thinking about, like, what's on the other side of what we know? What are the possibilities that could be? How can we even begin to approach those things that are on the other side of what we know? It, it, it can only be through Imagination. So that's my third point. And then the fourth point, it's connected. That many believers who fear this truth about imagination, they migrate to one extreme and they claim to know things that they don't really know. Did you ever do this, you know, testimony meaning, I know the church is true. And then on the other side of that, many former believers who do accept this truth that it's all imagination, they migrate to the other extreme and they claim that because it's imagination, it means that nothing that's being imagined can have any valuable basis in reality. But I think there's few people who are comfortable using their imagination with eyes wide open, with the knowledge that they are most certainly wrong about what it is that they're imagining, but they're right about the reasons why they're imagining it. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that one? That's number four. And then the fifth and final one. You ready? Are you sitting down? I want everybody who's sitting down for this. Joseph Smith was a true modern day prophet of God in exactly the same way that every human being on this planet is a true modern day prophet of God because we're all energetic beings, source energy, right? We're expressing what we express. We're source energy, making an expression of whatever, whoever we are. I'm not talking about supernatural stuff. This is just very normal. This is just who and what we are. We're all this energy that's dancing and playing with itself as us. And the Mormon church is just as valid and true an expression, a human expression, as any other system, belief system, human expression that's expressed from this source energy that makes us. Nothing is totally right. Nothing is totally wrong. So that's my uh, 2020 vision for 2020. And, uh, you know, the direction that this podcast has been going for a while and is going to keep going. So I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I'm going to leave you with an extended Easter egg that's a little story about old lady truth that's from another podcast that I do called Mythologi, if anybody's interested in that, that I occasionally do. I go in spurts with Mythologi. I mean, I kind of go in spurts with Infants on Thrones too, but what, what can I say? The truth is, I spurt. And I say these things in the name of Donald Hoffman, Eminem.
0: Yeah, well, I may go through this life, never knowing who I am and why I'm here and why I'm doing what I'm doing.
1: Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Elder E. Eldon Elderman of the Seventh Quorum of the Seventy. When I'm not interviewing children about their masturbation practices, I monitor the Infants on Thrones podcast for the Strengthening the Members Committee. If you really like what you hear, you can jeopardize your eternal salvation by giving the quorum a five-star rating and writing a short review on iTunes. I didn't, but that's because I want to be resurrected with my genitalia intact. Anyone for the closing prayer?
0: They were making it up. We're making it all up. What else can we do? we yeah, were making it up. We're making it all up. It's the only way to get through.
1: Because life's so hard, but life's all right. Once upon a podcast. Once upon a time,
0: uh, time before time, the world once a beautiful princess.
1: This is the Mythologi Podcast. Modern retellings of ancient myth. I am your Mythologi. Today's episode, Old Lady Truth. There was once a wealthy man who was the envy of every man around him. He was tall. He was strong. He was talented. He was successful at every single thing he tried. He had a beautiful wife, a loving family, the best group of friends that anyone could hope for, and an occupation that made him rich and famous. Life was perfect for this man, except for one thing. He was terribly unhappy. What is wrong? his wife would often ask him. I want to know the truth, he would reply. Well, then you should go and seek her, she replied back. So the man decided to do just that. He placed his house and all of his worldly possessions in his wife's name. She was quite insistent on this point. And he set out into the world, renouncing all. A beggar on the road towards truth. He first traveled to a nearby town and greeted the first man that he saw, a wise old fisherman returning from a long, hard day of work. Hello, he said. I am on a quest for truth. Can you point me in her general direction? The fisherman looked at him for a very long time. Those are a fine pair of shoes you're wearing. I wish I had a pair as fine as those the wealthy man removed the shoes from his feet and handed them to the fisher. They're yours. Now, please, can you point me towards Truth? Truth is an old woman living in a cave, said the wise old fisher. I could tell you how to get there, but if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. And with that, the fisher took his leave. The man continued to the next town, where he came across a young girl, gathering flowers in a field. Hello, the man said, I am on a quest for truth. I have learned that she is an old woman in a cave. Do you know where I can find her? The girl looked at him for a very long time. That is a fine cloak you are wearing. It must keep you very warm in the winter. "'The man removed his cloak and handed it to the girl. "'It is yours. Now please, can you point me towards truth?' "'I have never seen her myself,' said the girl. "'But I have heard talk of an old woman living in a cave just beyond the forest.' "'And with that, the girl took her leave.' "'The man next turned his sights towards the forest. "'Cold and barefoot, he wandered,' lost lost for many days until at last he came upon a fierce grey wolf hello said the man I am on a quest for truth I have learned that she is an old woman in a cave living somewhere in this forest do you know where I can find her the wolf looked at him for a very long time Those are very strong, meaty arms that you have, said the wolf. A single arm like that could sustain me through the entire winter. The man rolled up his sleeve and held out his right arm. It is yours, said the man. The wolf devoured it on the spot, bones and all. Now please, can you point me towards truth? I am truth called out an old woman from behind him. Come, join me, you foolish man, before this beast devours the rest of you. Old Lady Truth took this man to her cave and drew up a warm fire. In the flickering light of its flames, he saw that Old Lady Truth was a wizened old woman with drooping gray eyes, sad but kind. When she smiled, He could just make out a single yellow tooth. It's gross, I love it. Her gray thinning hair matted in a tangled mash behind her head, where bugs and worms and creatures of every kind used it gratefully as a nest. The skin on her face was nearly translucent, stretched perilously thin across her sharp, prominent bones. But when she spoke, her voice was lyrical, And pure, It pierced to the very center of his heart, and he knew at last he was finally hearing the voice of Truth. And for the first time in his life, he felt truly happy. He stayed with old lady Truth for a year and a day as she nursed him back to full health. She shared with him everything that she had learned throughout her life, everything that she knew of the heavens, everything she knew of the earth, everything she knew of the eternally connected hearts and minds of every creature living therein. And when a year and a day was up, the man stood and embraced her as he took his leave. My dear Lady Truth, he said to her, you have been so generous, and so kind. You have taught me so much and brought tranquility of purpose to my life. You have done so much for me. Is there anything at all that I can do for you to repay you? Old Lady Truth looked at him for a very long time. There is something you can do for me, she finally replied. When you return to your life and speak to others of this time that you have spent with me,
0: she said, tell them that I am young and beautiful. What does this mean for the mystery of consciousness? The mystery of consciousness. They were making it up, were making it all up. Thank you for listening to Intense on Front